Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Simon Ree, had a vision of helping people live more creative, joyful, and inspired lives by alleviating the financial stress that weighs so many down. His mission is to revolutionize the way finance is taught by shattering these long-held money beliefs. Starting as a futures broker, Simon subsequently held senior positions at Citibank in Singapore, where he honed his skills and expertise in financial markets with a particular focus on stocks and options. His 28-year career in the financial markets is what inspired him to author his best-selling book, The Tao of Trading. Simon's passion extends well beyond just trading the markets to analyzing, talking and writing about the markets and teaching others how to trade. Simon has mentored hundreds of aspiring traders on the simple but proven techniques he uses to generate consistent cash flow from the stock market. In this conversation, Simon shares some of his many lessons learned on his journey to being an everyday millionaire. Without any further delays, let's get this show started. Simon Reed, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Patrick. Pleasure to be here. Now, what listeners should know is Simon is currently in Singapore, is that uh, my understanding? That's right. And uh, it's early there and uh, much earlier than it is here, kind of starting your day. Our day is definitely a winding down. So thanks for joining me on the show today, Simon. Now, my intros of guests never do justice, of course, to what they do, who they are. Uh, you know, one thing I want to uh, dig into in this conversation is uh, your your book, a best-selling book, 
the Tao of trading. And I want to talk about that. But before I get into your book and understanding that aspect of it, you know, why don't you give me a little bit of a, I guess, some overview of who is Simon and uh, what do you do, Simon? All right. Thanks, Patrick. So I started my, I guess, fascination with the the stock market when I was a teenager. So I was I was in high school in the late 80s, and my, my second last year of school was the 1987 stock market crash. Mm. And I had an economics teacher at the time who was very passionate about finance and markets. And I he was my favorite teacher, and I really fed off his enthusiasm. And it just that the whole world kind of captivated me. And then when the when the crash happened, it was obviously news headlines. And, and I just thought, wow, this is just like it's must be terrifying for people who are involved, but it's really captivating and exciting. And uh, yeah, I, I was kind of bitten there and then by by the idea of following the stock market. And I just, just wanted to be involved in, in what I saw was a, a very exciting, dynamic um, career. So I studied economics and finance at university. My, my first job out of uni was working as a futures broker. And, you know, we were, we were dealing, you know, hogs and pork bellies and frozen orange juice and, sure. and all of those sorts of things. Um, but to be honest with you, the, the vast bulk of what we did was hedging wheat for farmers. And, uh, you know, learning about markets and derivatives and leverage, that, that was all very valuable. But I just didn't find trading commodity contracts as exciting as trading you know, Microsoft or Cisco or these dynamic companies that were coming up. And so um, after being a futures broker for a while, I, I worked as a credit analyst in a, in a corporate banking for about three years. And then I started at Goldman in the private wealth division and kind of my, my dream came true because I was thrown headfirst into the world of equity markets. And given my futures trading background, I, I kind of built a business with, within a business focusing very much on options and derivatives. And it was due to, I guess, that expertise that uh, I was asked to found and head up the markets desk for Goldman in Sydney for Australasia uh, between 2005, 2010. And that was, you know, th th they were interesting years as well, not least because uh, we had the global financial crisis between 2008, 2009. And uh, fair to say, I saw some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the tougher sides of Goldman's culture during that time. And, and when Citibank tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you fancy moving up to Singapore? Uh, we'd, we'd love for you to run a team up here. Uh, I thought, yeah, that's a great opportunity. So I moved up to Singapore in 2010. Uh, that's where I met my wife, uh, worked at Citibank till 2016. And uh, I guess I, I just got to a point in my career where I, you know, mid-40s, bit of a midlife crisis maybe, but I started to question what my marginal contribution to society was. And I, I didn't really like the answers I was coming up with because most of what I was doing was helping people who were already incredibly wealthy maintain or increase their wealth. And I, I just thought to myself, you know, I've, I've got a skill set here that I've developed over, you know, a 20-odd year career, and I could really put that skill set to use for people who could really benefit from it rather than people who, frankly, don't really need it. And so when I when I listen to that kind of background, you know, there's something, there's two parts to that that are for me always intriguing. Number one, that part of it which says, you know, I woke up one day with the realization that as much money as I've made or success I've had doing what I do and or supporting others to make a lot of money and me delivering on that 
commitment or or outcome, there was a part of it that was missing for you, which was where do I get to be a contribution? Where do I make get to make a, a real difference in other people's lives? That's how I'm hearing it. Is that is that kind of how you mean it, Simon? That's exactly how I mean it. Uh, you know, financial rewards aside, you know, external accolades aside, the feeling I had internally was 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 lacking. So this is, I mean, this is Goldman's. You're talking about Goldman Sachs and and Citibank. I mean, these are two behemoths. They're leaders in the industry, uh, however you view leaders, but they are at the pointy end of the spear in that particular industry. And I mean, you were playing a significant role as part of that. And you were delivering on it. You were learning. And, you know, years before I, you know, I've been a self, I've been self-employed. I've been a business owner for 37 years. But prior to that, you know, my short, you know, kind of time in the working world, about seven years, I worked for a large corporation. And that's really where I like to say I got my training because it was of what I did within that organization. And it really taught me a lot about business and, and, and the world of business. And that's actually was my kind of university of real life when I got into it, when I got thrown into that role and what that came of. So in your case, I mean, you're number one, you have a high interest in it. I mean, that's, you, you know, you picked up on that wherever you got, I'm going to dig into a little bit, where did that interest, where do you think it came from? But then you brought it forward. Now, in in the book that you wrote, what was your kind of thought process? I mean, you consider that stock trading, equity trading, futures, all of the things that you just talked about, it's pretty analytical, heady kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. anything with the title, you know, the Tao of something is not really that, in my world anyways. Um, yeah. Give me a little bit of a background around that, Simon. I, I love that you've picked up on on that. Um, actually, the, the title perhaps doesn't quite fit the subject matter in, in, <laughs> no. in the traditional sense. It, firstly, on, on the title, and in, in addition to being you know a, a trader and a, a financial markets participant, uh, I'm also a certified Jeet Kune Do instructor. So the title for the book was uh, a tribute to one of my favorite books, which was the the Tao of Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee. Uh, one of my favorite books, and uh, and, and really, yes. Yeah, so the, the the title of the book was was inspired by by him and and that book. Now, in in terms of my approach to writing the book, why does the world need yet another book on how to trade options? All right, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of books on options trading that have been written over the years, and, and I've read a good deal of them. The problem in my mind with most of the books out there is they are both quite dull. That they read like a textbook, and and they're difficult. They're not easy to get your hands around. They're not easy to get your mind around. They they can be quite mathematical. Um, so you, you've got a whole bunch of books with great content, but very difficult for the average person to to access. It really takes a a real commitment to get through there. Hundred percent. So, what I wanted to do was write a book about options trading trading that was both engaging and simple, and that was that was really my my. Number one goal from start to finish, no complex maths, some personal anecdotes, a bit of humor, keep it light. And also, I'm, uh, my intention wasn't just to throw a bunch of uh, mechanical setups at people. You know, the Tao means the way. And I really wanted to give people everything I think they need to, to hit the ground running uh, at the start of a successful career in trading. So it incorporates things like uh, looking after your emotional state, looking after your mindset, risk management, planning, how to actually make it all happen and, and, and get your trading career off the ground, 
rather than what, what most books do is just saying, here's setup A, here's setup B, here's setup C. We see often, and only because, you know, as much as I'm a real estate investor, I also look at other ways to put money to work. And, you know, that includes the equity market. And, and I, I actually didn't start getting really into the equity market until back in about 2007. I kind of played with it, you know, before that. But I jumped in in 2007, 2008, when the market really turned down, I went, gosh, there's got to be a lot of really great opportunities happening. And as it turns out, there was. And then the U.S. dollar was, you know, trading on par with the Canadian dollar. And frick, I looked like a genius. You know, I really, really did well. But having said all of that, you know, there is a part of it that as investors that I, I'm sure you've witnessed time and time again. And, you know, the one part that I pick out of because I'm guilty of this is not getting into the emotions of trading and or the emotions of a stock that drops 20% overnight or or the way the stock market might roll and in, and making emotional decisions as opposed to having a plan, having a thesis, executing against that plan. And, and it sounds like within this, you've kind of covered that, you know, that emotional aspect of it, which I think is a really big part of where mistakes get made with investors. And so, Simon, you're the expert on this. Where do you see it? I think emotional control and, and just having the right mindset is the final frontier as a success in trading or, or investing. Because the market, it's literally designed to coax you into doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, this is why, you know, we, we've, we've had a we're in a bear market at the moment, right? Yeah. We had a, a pretty decent rally in the S&P and the NASDAQ. They both rallied sort of 20-odd percent uh, throughout June and July. And it's only at that point, you know, that the so-called experts come out on TV and, and start proclaiming a new bull market. And and it, it happens time and time and time again. People are, are only brave enough to put money to work after there's been, already been a substantial rise. And, and after a substantial fall, that's when people get afraid and frightened and they start selling and they, they feel sick about, you know, how much money they're losing. And, and in this manner, people, you know, people who are not aware of their emotional state, not aware that market cycles are designed to do this to the average person, uh, that they end up buying at the top and selling at the bottom. And it, it happens, you know, it's happened throughout history. And it continues to happen time and time again where everybody goes in with the intentions of buying low and selling high. And generally the polar opposite of that is what occurs are often what, you know, we end up emotionally uh, being dragged down the rabbit hole and we sell off. And, and then what do we do? You know, we're, we, we miss those opportunities. You know, it's interesting, you know, in this bear market, I don't have a lot of money in the equity market anymore. And, and I've been out of it for a while, but I do have some in there. And I realized that, and I looked at my portfolio, and this, I think, just comes with, I don't know, maturity, conversation, whatever it might be. But the realization that as much as my portfolio is off by 20%, I have no charge around it because the stocks I bought, if anything, I'm looking at them and going, you know, I'm, I'm assessing for myself, will it, will it drop some more? Do I want to buy more of those stocks? Because I believe well in the companies and, and, the, and I believe in, you know, my kind of working thesis for why I bought those particular stocks. And for me, I look at it now and going, now I have to decide, you know, is this an opportunity to actually, you know, continue it? Those are tough decisions to make. And I know guys like you who are in this, kind of have a, a view of the world that being in it every day uh, that most 
you know, rookies like me don't have. Even as much experience as I have, I'm still, you know, certainly not anywhere near what I would call an expert. I do okay with mine. I'm not giving anybody else advice. Do you understand what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that these are decisions that we have to make. When you look at your book and what's in the book, do you kind of address those kinds of issues, Simon? Or how do you address yeah, those issues? Absolutely. So I think making those sorts of decisions from your gut often doesn't work. I mean, intuition can be great in life. It can also be great in the markets, but only after thousands of reps. If, if, you're, if you're relatively new to the market and you haven't got years of experience and, and you know, several hundred trades under your belt, uh, your intuition will, will, again, similar to our previous conversation, lead you up the garden path. It, it'll yeah. point you to, towards doing the, the wrong thing at the wrong time. So what I give in my book is uh, really a, a framework within which people can base their decisions on. Is this stock in an uptrend? Is this stock within a, a, you know, a, at a good moment in time to join that uptrend? Is it in a downtrend? Is, is it at a point in time where I should be adding to it or reducing? Uh, it, just, it gives people a framework to, from which to make those decisions more easily. The other thing that I stress in my book is the importance of writing your own trading plan. And uh, I, I give people a, a template from which to actually do that. And the reason this is so important is that your trading plan will always tell you what you should be doing. Now, sometimes in the heat of battle, you know, when, you, when you're feeling the pressure, you can uh, be tempted to do the wrong thing. But sometimes you'll feel confusion. You'll feel like a deer in the headlights. And if ever anything like that happens, you just pull out your trading plan and it will tell you what you should do. And so I recommend people print it out and have it on their desk and really have it as, as something that's easily accessible. When you look at what's happening in the world today, Simon, and, and this isn't to go off on a tangent or, but you know, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of talk around given what's happened over the course of the pandemic and the monetary policies that have been implemented by central banks right around the, you know, across around the world on a global scale. But let's just talk about North American markets. And, you know, when you start to realize and understand that a lot of what's being, I guess, propped up is, you know, the amount of money that flows into the equity market from, we'll call it government, central banks. I mean, What's your response to that, saying that if they do that, I mean, if they stop doing that, we're going to have an epic crash. What's your response to that? I'm sure you've been yeah. part of those those narratives. Certainly. I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic. Look, the chance of an epic crash, is, is it's it's greater than zero. Uh, I don't know that it would be my, my base case scenario at this point, but certainly what, the situation central banks and, and governments around the world find themselves in at the moment is, is concerning. Uh, obviously, inflation has become a global phenomenon. The very, I'm not aware of any major economy that isn't wrestling with it at the moment. You look at the UK, and you know the, the Bank of England is is forecasting inflation to peak at 13, uh, percent and of course in the US it's up around eight and a half at the moment. But but if you talk to people in the supermarket aisle, they'd probably tell you it's somewhere north of eight and a half percent. And yet we've got a central bank now that is obviously tightening, withdrawing liquidity. To, to try and stamp out inflation. The problem is the economy is slowing down as well. Okay, the US has had two consecutive quarters of negative growth. That has been the accepted definition of recession since 1974. There's now a big debate going on about whether or not we're actually in a recession and there's been a certain amount of uh, 
you know, manoeuvring and, and gaslighting going on there. Mm. But the fact is the economy is slowing down and the central bank is tightening. And that's something that we haven't really seen before. Usually central banks will tighten to cool down the economy. This time they're tightening to cool down inflation. And we haven't been in this situation since the 70s, where the central bank has been forced to do, forced to act on inflation. And uh, the economy is, is kind of a, a secondary I wouldn't say an afterthought, but a secondary consideration. So how do you, I don't know if this, we never know where these conversations are going to go. And this is just one part of a conversation that we're having, uh, you know, and, and I, because I pay attention to what's going on economically, I look at the macro of a global scenario. And, and so I have interest, I have a high, high interest in that. And, and so when I look at, listen to many, and I'm going to say there's probably a half a dozen various people that I listen to that play in the market are considered leaders to the degree they are. You know, many are saying, you know, uh, P ratios are, you know, really skewed, uh, stay out of the market. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, hang out in a you know, 30-year bond right now just to be safe. It's better to get, you know, three and a quarter percent or whatever that bond is paying than it is and let it ride out. Uh, you're not keeping up with inflation, but you're not putting your money at risk. You know, you'll always get your money back on that bond. So when you hear those kinds of, like I say, that type of narrative, you as a trader, you with a, you know, a, a thought process and and I guess we'll call it a, a strategy or philosophy around trading. How do you respond to that? Because you've got to have, I guess, clients and and people that you're speaking with and you're hearing these things going on. Where do you, how do you approach something like that? Because, yeah. you know, a confused mind says no, Simon, as we know. And so whether it's the guy who's trading on his own, he's going, I'm out, I'm going to sit in cash because I just don't want to risk it. Or you've got clients going, you know, put me off, pull me off, get me on the sidelines. What, like, what's your kind of take on what's happening these days? It's an awesome question. And it's, it's a, it's a really important question. And there's, there's a little bit to unpack there. So, the question that I get a lot at the moment is, you know, where do I put my money? Mm-hmm. Stocks are down, bonds are down. Bonds have had their worst year on record year to date, by the way. Gold is down, okay? The, the so-called inflation hedge. You know, cryptocurrencies have been smashed. So when everything's falling, people say, you know, people panic and think, well, what, where, where do I put my money? And I think it's that the people approach this question from a very fixed mindset of, I need to expose my money to risk all of the time because Wall Street has told me my whole life that it's impossible to time the market and it's impossible to beat the market. So I've just got to stick my money in the market, close my eyes and cross my fingers and toes and hope that everything turns out okay. And if, you've, if you're young and you've got a lot of time that, that sort of strategy can, can work really well for you. Um, although there have been 10, 15, 20, even 30-year periods where real returns on the stock market have been flat. So the, the, there are no guarantees. But if, you're, if you don't have a lot of time for that volatility and that compounding to, to kind of work its way out, I think you need to approach this question with a, a far more growth mindset of, um, for example, instead of being exposed to risk all of the time, take the attitude of I can learn to identify high probability points in time to expose myself to risk instead of being exposed to risk all of the time. And that's that's what I think people should do. Um, it doesn't have to replace 
your long-term investing. It can be very complementary to it. But what I generally find is people who start down this path of, like I say, identifying those high probability moments in time of time to be exposed to risk, uh, they end up gener- uh, ex- exposing more and more of their capital to those strategies because they, they tend to work really, really well. Uh, you think about it, uh, being exposed to risk all of the time, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's just unnecessary. Well, once you've got the skills to identify high probability moments in time to, to be exposed to risk, whether it's in a, a rising market or a falling market. And to say that it's impossible to do that, it's like saying it's impossible to fly a 747. You know, it seems impossible if you don't have the skill set. But once you've acquired the skill set, it almost becomes second nature. Well, it's interesting what you bring up here, Simon, which is, you know, I want to, you know, in the world of real estate, which is the world that I play primarily in, and that is that in a rising market like we've seen over the past three years, really, you know, everybody's a genius, everybody's making money. And now all of a sudden, oh, geez, interest rates are going up. Oh, my gosh, it's harder to find the real estate that cash flows, all of those kinds of conversations that go on. And the reality of it is, is that now that the market is in fact, there was opportunities on the way up and there's just as many, if not more opportunities as the market starts to slow down and come off. But if you, when you're into a hot market, everybody looks like they know what the hell they're doing. And, and it really is, you know, the truth of all of that is that that makes everybody look like a real estate genius, to be honest with you. And so does, it's like me knowing better, but realizing that I had a good run in 2000, from 2008, right up until, you know, to really today in terms of the stock market. But I, that wasn't because I was particularly smart. I mean, you know, it was pretty easy to run, to ride that run. It really was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, strategy, I don't think, given what I did. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm not, taking anything away from a lot of expertise out there. So where am I going with that whole conversation? The reality of it is, is now is the time when there is opportunities. And, you know, as much as people want to pull their money off and to the sidelines, that may be part of a strategy, uh, maybe their only strategy. But ultimately, that's where opportunities are missed. And that's why, you know, guys like yourself who have been doing this for a very long time, look at the market differently than somebody who's only ever seen a rising market and who's only lived in this world where stocks only go up. Well, no, actually they don't. And stock markets and you know the S&P and the you know Nasdaq and the Dow, they don't always just go up. And to your point, they can drop for periods of time. So this is to me a time where having a conversation with somebody like yourself is incredibly important so that you're not missing the opportunities and you're not putting money at risk that doesn't need to be risked. And I, I don't know what, I think what, does you follow that thought process, Simon? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, there's there's no no more important time than right now to, to really understand what the risks are and, and not only how to manage them, but how to profit from them. Because mm-hmm. yeah, there's every chance that the stock market could, could be about to go through another period like the 70s where, you know, between... 1969 and 1979, the stock market went nowhere, but there were some big rallies and some big falls in between. And if you're just, you know, if you, if you're a buy and hold passive type investor, that, that's a it's a harrowing experience. And and there's, you know, there's, there's a history shows us there's a real risk that people will will be inclined to give up when the stock market's near its lows, and uh, only get back in when it's near its highs. And and if you if you're not disciplined and you're Riding those waves of emotion, you, you could end up, you, you could finish the decade poorer than what you started, which is a, 
But Joe, well, yeah, something you just said there really hit home for me, which is, you know, when the market's only going up, you get to be passive. There's not really any challenges there. You know, there, there may be little blips along the way, but, you know, you've been riding the market up. There isn't a lot of thought or planning or strategy that goes into it. You know, put your money in, hang on and, and go. And this is a different time. You know, I was um, I, I, one of the guys that I like to follow and who I really like overall is a guy by the name of Jim Rickards. Um, I don't know if you follow Jim or not, but, you know, he's got a, an interesting background, does a lot of stuff, pretty wise and given his background. And the one comment he made one day, you know, given what's happening uh, in the context of the pandemic and the results of money printing and all the rest of it, he says, you know, he says it used to be that you would, you know, a diversified portfolio meant buying whatever 30 stocks and being diversified in equities and options and futures or whatever that might be commodities. And, you know, that would be considered a diversification. In today, diversification means, you know, the equity market, the commodity market, it means precious metals, it means Bitcoin, it means real, real estate. And that's really what diversification means. And I, you know, philosophically, I like that and I agree with that and I do that. But what's your view as a trader and, and somebody who comes at it philosophically different than, than many? And I don't want to call you a trader because it's, that would imply that you're kind of in there up and down on a day-to-day basis, which I don't think you are. You can call me a trader. It's it's, it's okay. fine. I, mean, I I I have a different definition of trader from most people. Um, I'll just touch on that quickly, if, if you sure. don't mind. Yeah, please. In my mind, if if you buy a financial asset, any kind of asset, with the expectation that you'll be able to sell it at a higher price in the future, you're a trader. You are trading price action, whether it's over the short term or the long term. You're only an investor if you're buying an asset that you understand well and you're seeking to participate over the long term of the income and profit growth that will flow to you as a result of being a, a, an owner of that investment. Love that. So that honestly, I, I think the, the, the yeah. most people are traders. Yeah. They just don't realize it. Because they don't realize it, they're crappy traders because they, they don't know how to manage the risk. I love that distinction. I'm definitely making a mental note of that one. That's great. So what's your thoughts in when you look outside? You know, you're you play in the equity market. And when you look at and think about Bitcoin or you think about precious metals as as a couple of examples, real estate, do you do you go outside of the kind of the field of play or or how do you yeah. operate? You, you yeah, do, I yeah. do. So, you know, I, I use the stock market for yeah, you know, I, I you know my my living expenses. That's that's where the bulk of my income comes from. But for my sort of longer term investing, I, I don't have a long term buy and hold stock portfolio. For my longer term stuff, I like to get that out of the market and into things that you describe. So it, property, gold, tiny bit of Bitcoin. Yeah. So when you look at um, what's happening on Wall Street today, you know one of the things that you you know talk about on one of your topics is you know, the five big myths of Wall Street, which kind of piques my curiosity. What would you, how do you recap those? Yeah. So I guess the, the, the number one big myth that I like to try and bust is this idea that um, a five, uh, sorry, 10% per annum is a fantastic return. We, we get told by Wall Street year in, year out that you can't, you couldn't possibly expect to earn more than 10% a year because you can't beat the market, right? And that's that's approximately the long-term average annual return of the S&P 500. The reason 
Wall Street wants you to believe that is because that way that they can generate those returns for you pretty much in their sleep over the long term, but they get to charge you a bunch of fees for doing so. All right, and and what Wall Street wants to do is is provide scalable investment solutions that they can roll out to millions of people at very low cost. Now, how do you convince people that those investments are doing a great job? Well, you convince people that you know if the S and P only does ten percent. You can't expect to do more than that because you'd be taking too much risk, mm. uh, and it's it's just you know it's it's complete nonsense. Now, ten percent per annum. That, that look, if, like I said, if you're young and you've got thirty years to compound that, and and you can keep keep contributing, and and you follow a very disciplined strategy, and you don't bail out, panic out at the bottom at the lows, that can work. Uh, but if you're if you're a bit older, if you don't have the time for for combat compounding to work its magic where you don't have a lot of disposable income to throw into investments on a regular basis 10 percent per annum is, is not a return that's likely to really move the needle for you well yeah because it won't you know so let you will use me i am 64 years old right so if i yeah. had not prepared for stuff and so i phoned simon one day and go dude what am I going to do? You know, I, I, you know, I've only got a half a million bucks and gosh, you know, what do I do now? You know, what are you going to say to somebody that is in that position at that, you know, 60 plus age that, you know, is kind of running out of uh, runway, if you will, to generate a lot of uh, income for, or to generate growth and a return on that investment? Well, it, it's never too late to pick up a new skill. I think my, my most senior student was uh, in her 80s, a uh, lady from Queensland in Australia. And uh, when she started with me, she she barely knew how to open a second tab on her browser. And now she's trading. So mm. it, anyone can do it. It's just a case of having the, the desire and, and putting away the time. Uh, the other problem that a lot of people have is they, for whatever reason, they approach trading with a Almost what what I call a lottery ticket mentality that they sort of think you know I'll, I'll be able to take my my two thousand dollars and turn it into a million dollars within six months and I mean that's that's not going to happen either. You can earn really good returns, but but you, you, that sort of thing is is a fairy tale. What I encourage people to do is treat trading same way you would any regular job. I mean if you if you've got a job if you've got a you know a boss you're an employee if you show up to work every day and you're consistent, and you do a good job, there's a reasonable expectation that you're going to get a regular paycheck. Nobody goes up to work and thinks, right, today's the day I'm going to earn half a million dollars and I'll be able to retire tomorrow. All right, But they approach trading with, with exactly that sort of mentality. And I think if people approach trading the same way they would a job, you, you show up, you be consistent, you do a good job, there is a strong expectation that you're going to get a regular paycheck from the market. So what do you do when you look and you're having a conversation with a client, you know, and somebody says to you, well, how do you see the next five years? What do we look at what's happening? It just seems so darn vague, murky, uncertain, confusing. You know, how do you kind of give somebody guidance into how you look into the future that way, Simon? Okay, so let me share with you uh, my my headlight theory of capital allocation. Sounds fancy, but it's really very simple. So just just pretend you have got to drive 100 miles home. So you're Canadian, 100 kilometers home. Sure. And it's the middle of the night. 
and there's a storm raging and there's no full moon and the visibility is really poor. The rain is hammering down and it's a long, twisty road and you've got no map and you've got no GPS. How are you going to get home? How am I going to get home? Well, I'm going to either one, I'm going to slow right down or I'm going to pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> The, the, your your alternative is you, you just you turn your headlights on. Well, that would be it. Okay, I, I assume that we had headlights on. <laughs> okay, but I understand. Okay, I get it. I get the model now. Go. Yeah. So, so what we're doing is we, you you can you can drive a hundred kilometers down a dark windy road in the middle of the night during a storm. Just all you have to see is how far your headlight lamps illuminate. It could be that thirty or sixty meters in front of you. Right and I, I treat markets the same way. I don't need to know where markets are going to be in five years' time down that long, dark, twisty road. All I need to know is what's what's immediately in front of me. What what are my headlamps illuminating? And uh, I, I can I can navigate markets just just by looking at that fairly short term. When I hear that, and I and I know it isn't this, but when I hear that, I it sounds a little bit like day trading. But and maybe it is that. You know, tell me a little bit about. Because that's how it sounds to me. Because sure. I'm I'm of the training or the mindset or the reading that says, no, you have to look at that company and look down and see the future for that company and then decide that you're going to buy that company. But give me a little bit of your insights. So I'm I'm not a day trader. I'm I'm what's known as, as a swing trader. All right. Yeah. So I hold positions overnight. Yeah, my, my typical holding period would be, well, I mean, anywhere from I guess two or three days to three or four weeks. So some of my positions can be fairly short term, but usually I'm looking at a, you know, a two to three week sort of time horizon. So swing traders look at technicals. You're driven primarily by technicals or all technicals or, or a mix technicals. of that? Yeah. Technicals. Yeah. So it's definitely technicals. Yeah. I don't, TA. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I don't really care about fundamentals because fundamentals are extremely subjective and, you know, they, they change far quicker than, than people realize. But the, the fact is, what defines the price of an asset in any market is supply and demand, all right? So if you can get a handle on what, what is happening in supply and demand, you can get a handle on what price is likely to do. And, and that is, you'd know this from real estate, right? It's, it's all about supply and demand. Now, fundamentals only impact the price of a stock to the extent that they impact supply and demand. But all of that, shows up in the technicals. When you know how to read a price chart, you know how to read technicals, you can see where stock is being supplied, see where demand is building up. You, you can build up a pretty good picture of what is what is more likely to happen than not. It's interesting. You know, I follow a few technical traders and it is pretty interesting. I find it quite interesting. I have never taken the time to really investigate. You know, I understand some really fundamental stuff about technicals. So and you know, and certainly the concept behind it. So in your world, volatility is kind of uh, is what you you like the volatility in a market because the technicals will show you where to get in and and probably where to get out based on that volatility. Is that a, a is that an accurate statement? Yeah, volatility certainly plays an important part, and it's important to note that with technical analysis, same as with fundamental analysis, there are no guarantees that there will absolutely be losses along the way. 100%. Uh, and this is why risk management is so crucial. Uh, if you're not managing your risk properly, you know it, it's unlikely to be a happy experience for you. But all we're looking to do with uh, technical analysis or with trading is, is just 
have a probabilistic edge, which just means the probabilities are in our favor. So A could happen or B could happen, but A is more likely than B. And if you do that over many, many trades and you win more than you lose and your winners are bigger than your losers, you can't not make money. And so, it actually becomes quite simple. Yeah, and I and I'm all, I've had a, you know I had had a high degree of interest in this particular you know the swing trading conversation. Like I said, I've never taken it on for lack of the commitment of time to it. But having said that, I, I find it very fascinating and very interesting. But I want to take off. I want to go off on a totally different tangent here, Simon. And now that I understand more, and our listeners understand about more of who you are, what you do you know, in the context of the podcast, Everyday Millionaire is, you know, it is really built around seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary results, you know, and when we look at, you know, somebody like yourself who's achieved the level of success that you've achieved, and you've authored your book or books, and you're doing what you're doing, I'm always interested in the path that got you here. So, you know, when you consider that as a young man growing up today, you're really, you're an entrepreneur. You're, a, you know, you had jobs, you had jobs with some really, really well-established big corporations. You cut your teeth, you got your education, if you will, you proved your worth. Then you had that kind of fork in the road moment where you went, there's got to be more to my life than this. And so how did you get, you know, did you, that entrepreneurial journey that you eventually kind of morphed to, you know, where were you as a kid growing up? Were parents entrepreneurial? Did you have siblings who were entrepreneurial? What kind of, what do you think gave you this view that you eventually got to or developed and, you know, in coming to, you know, the Tao of trading? Uh, I would say that I'm an entrepreneur by default. Uh, it was never, you know, it was never an aspiration of mine to be, you know, to, to, I, I don't use that word often, entrepreneur. Um, my passion, it's not business. It's not running a business. It's teaching. I, I, I love teaching. And this was something I, I realized, I guess, during my, my martial arts journey. You know, I, whenever I would um, learn a new technique, I'd, I'd always think to myself, how would I teach this to somebody else? How would I explain what I've just learned to another person? And that was what drove me to become a, a Jeet Kune Do instructor. And I've even, I've noticed this through various facets of my life. I mean, I, a few years ago, I, I took up kite surfing and, and look, I'm a, I'm a terrible kite surfer. I've, I've got no business teaching anyone <laughs> how to kite surf. But I even remember during, during my kite surfing lessons thinking, how would I, how would I explain this to somebody else? How would mm. I, and, and I, I just love that kind of imparting knowledge. And I, I think one of the most um, rewarding experiences is when you see the penny drop in somebody else, you see the light bulb go on and, and they just get it. And you think, oh, it's, it's just a, a really, really rewarding experience. So um, that was really what drove me to do it. And, and the only way I, I could do it was by, you know, setting up my own business and uh, my own you know, online education company. When you were back working with uh, Citibank, or was it? Did you say Citibank uh, or Goldman? Uh, Goldman Sachs. Did right. were you were you still of that same thought process? Were you working with peers and or within the teams of those organizations? Were was that a role that you wanted to play or that you actually took on? Yeah, I, I used to run uh, training sessions for people in in options. Um, yeah, for, for for staff. And so, when you look at your martial arts journey, you know, was that something? You know, what drove you to do martial arts? You know, when we look at 
think about martial arts. I, I don't do martial arts, but at the end of the day, I understand some basic concepts. I look at the trading that you do is very technical. I look at, you know, martial arts as being very technical. Do you find yourself drawn to that, you know, uh, cracking the code and these technical kind of things that you're doing? And uh, is that something that, you know, kind of lights you up? Yeah, cracking the code is is a is a term that I, I use. It is something that I really kind of sets me alight, I guess. Martial arts, I mean, I, I got into it as a, you know, I was probably 10. And I was a, you know, an underconfident kid. Used to get picked on at school a bit. And, you know, I had a couple of couple of friends that did judo and my parents thought it would be good for me. And uh, I wasn't a particularly athletic or, or sporty kid. I didn't have great eye-hand coordination, but, but for some reason. Uh, judo was just something I was I had I had a natural aptitude for. It was it was the one, you know, the one sport I was a little bit better at than most people, rather than perhaps a little bit worse at. And uh, yeah, I went on from judo, studied a range of other arts, and yeah, I, I just found that um, yeah, it's it's the one sporting endeavor that I've, I've been able to do quite naturally. That's fantastic. Now you're born and raised in Australia. Where in Australia? I was born in England. Um, oh, born in England. To, okay. Yeah, moved to Australia as a thirteen-year-old. Got it. Uh, went to a fairly uh, rough school when I when I first joined Australia, and uh, yeah, got the English accent sort of beaten out of me. <laughs> Fortunately, I had some <laughs> martial arts schools there as well. Um, and yeah, I, I grew up in grew up in Perth. Well, went to high school in university in Perth, Western Australia, and then uh, kind of made my career in Sydney. So you've had the degree of success that you've had, and you you entered into and played a game that many would be intimidated by, given the you know volume, the the, the dollar amounts, if you will, that you eventually got to. But what what got you into this whole analytical mind aside? Were you originally driven to get your education? gain that background was originally driven by dollars and cents. You saw big opportunities there or what was it that drew you into that particular career path? Do you think when you look back on it, Simon? Look, I, I think it was fascination really. It was just something that, um, and I, as, as a teenager, I would turn to the back of the newspaper and, and look at the, uh, the share price tables. And I, I can't explain why, but, but I used to love doing it. I used to love tracking stock prices. I just used to get engrossed in it. And yeah, look, I mean, you, you see, you see movies like Wall Street, and you think, oh yeah, I, I want the car and I, I want the Daryl Hannah and, and all of that. I mean, that that I guess those are the trappings, but that that was never the uh, never the prime mover. It was just just something that uh, I found fascinating and, and stimulating. When you see what's happening in the market today, when you consider, you know, back to your point, where of course there's lots of stories out there about the, you know kid who you know took 2000 and bought bitcoin or they you know robin hood and you know they're now owning their lamborghini and how do you see that in in terms of technology in terms of what's happening whether it be with tiktok or facebook or whatever social media that probably i don't even know of anymore you know there's so many out there but when you look at that happening in the marketplace i think i can't help but think that is adding to probably the confusion and maybe even the frustration by somebody like yourself was looking at what's going on in the market and going, you know, it's all smoke and mirror and, you know, it's a one in a million shot and yeah, maybe he bought Bitcoin at a penny and did okay. But, you know, how are you seeing these things play out given how technology's evolved, how, how communication is now wide open 
and the different platforms are there to communicate and share your wins and all of the stories and sell your wares and talk about how you can make a hundred a hundred thousand a day. You know, give me some kind of how you see it given the experience that you have, Simon. I mean, for every you know twenty year old who's bought a Lamborghini, what 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 they don't tell you is is the millions of accounts both in the crypto space and in Robin Hood that have gone to zero. All right. Mm-hmm. So the, the vast majority of people haven't had a, a good experience. Um, and, and there have been a, a small number of you know, very notable outliers. Um, I think that the, the technology that is now able, or it, it will be deployed or that is available at people's fingertips is um, something that we're, we're still trying to, I guess, get, get our hands around because it's, it's a very new space. You know, this concept of social investing, which really took off post the pandemic, you, had, you know, the Reddit forums, Wall Street bets, that type of thing, that, that it's obviously become popular and, and obviously popular with, I guess, the, the generation of people younger than me, because they've really grown up as, as digital natives. So I'm, I'm very much a, a Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. But um, what I would say to people is, yeah, look, this is, it, it's interesting and it, it can, it, I think it's got a, a serious place, right? I, I, th- I think it's only going to get bigger. And I, I can understand why younger people would have a certain amount of mistrust in you know, Wall Street research and, and that type of thing. But always consider the source, all right? If you're, if you're following free tips from some anonymous poster on a Reddit forum, uh, you've got nobody but yourself to blame if things go wrong. And okay, they, they may be posting snapshots of their account, but you know, all of those types of things can be easily doctored these days by, you know, non-experts. Sure. You, know, you don't yeah. need to be a graphic artist uh, these days to doctor an account statement. So just always consider the source. Uh, these sources are nearly always anonymous. Uh, and, and, you know, generally that the information that you get is worth exactly what you pay for it. When you look at you as a swing trader, you know, over the years that you've been doing it, you know, and that you you teach, you coach, you've got your program of uh, teaching others, you know, what are, what are, let's say, one, two, three of the kind of tough lessons that you've learned in swing trading? You know, uh, was it because you got emotional? Was it because you went off on a tip? Was it because you went off your plan? Give us some insights into some of the mistakes that are made with swing traders or investors in general that you see are common. And it was like, if people would just quit doing that, they would make more money or at least they wouldn't, it wouldn't cost them as much. Any, anything that you would give us there? Oh, goodness me. I mean, I, <laughs> I lost a life-changing sum of money in 2008 um, because I was listening to who I thought were the smartest people in the room and who kept saying, buy the dip and this stock's cheap and that stock's cheap and the market's bottomed and, mm. Uh, you know, I, I found myself kind of buying all the way down, and uh, that that had a pretty negative impact, certainly over the, the short term on, on on my wealth. And I, f- I found the whole experience really frustrating. And and this was when this is when I kind of swore off uh, long term investing or you know fundamental investing because I I, I really thought I've, I've got to find a better way. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was at Goldman at the time. This this was really the heyday of Goldman Sachs prop trading, and I, you know, I knew some of the prop traders. You know, befriended them, and I, I was aware of sorts of returns they were generating. And I, you know, I'd take them out to lunch, I'd take them out for a beer, and say, "How are you doing this? You know, how are you making money? Our analysts are saying this, and yet stock prices have all fallen. It's like, 
oh God, we don't listen to those blokes. We, we don't care what they've got to say. We follow price action. And that was when I went, aha, uh-huh, right, mm-hmm. this, is, this is what I've got to get more involved in. And so I was very fortunate to, uh, you know, be rubbing shoulders with people who were making money that way for, for the firm. And, and they really provided me with the, the foundations of, of how I trade today. In terms of mistakes made during swing trading, it's, it's nearly always a result of one of two things, not managing risk properly. Mm-hmm. So letting a, a position that's gone south go further south when, when you should have cut the position or, or taking too much risk in one position. And not managing risk properly is, it's always, by definition, you've gone off plan because your trading plan tells you how to allocate and manage risk. But it's really, it's, it's all about risk management. Yeah, sometimes you you might take, come out of a position too early, but if you if if you've got a if you're taking profits consistently at uh, an eighty percent profit level, that's not a problem. Even if the stock keeps you know the option value keeps running, so long as you're always cutting your losses at a you know a thirty percent or a forty percent loss, e- even if you're only making money fifty percent of the time, you'll still be profitable overall. If you're making money sixty sixty five percent of the time, you can make a really good living doing that. So when you look at what you're talking about in terms of risk is that is an allocation of capital is how I hear that. And, mm-hmm. and that is so if somebody's going into this game with whatever, we'll use 50 grand just as a number. And and it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to allocate 10% of that 50 grand to a particular a trade. That's a lot different than saying or going, holy cow, I'm going to allocate 50% of my capital to this trade. I mean, two different levels of risk. And what I'm hearing you say is that you have to really have a plan that says, you know, I'm never going to go more than 10% or I'm going to go 5% or 2% or like, how do you, how would you kind of structure that, Simon? So what I do is I I look at my, my portfolio, either the positions I've got or the positions I'm contemplating. And I always look at the worst case scenario. So I say to myself, if, if all of these positions end up going to zero, could I live with that? Would, would my account survive? And if the answer mm-hmm. is yes, then I'm okay with it. If the answer is no, then I need to do something about that right now, immediately, uh, because I'm taking on too much risk. Great. And that's, you know, I mean, how much simpler can that be than answering that particular question? So when we look into what's happening, you know, getting out of the kind of the what you do and what's happening as a swing trader, you know, you're still a guy that's, you know, got a life, you're running a business, you've got a family, you're in Singapore, which gives you a way different view of the world than many. So when I'm looking at the kind of the macro, the global macro world, and I'm seeing, you know, Russia and Ukraine, of course, and then I look at what's happening in behind the scenes and directly, indirectly China, you know, relationship with Russia and what they're doing and oil and the dollars that the way they're shifting money around uh, Ta- um, uh, Taiwan comes into that play, then we see what's happening in Europe. So when I look at this overarching global picture as a Canadian that's you know of course given all the way news does or doesn't come out, how do you see it? like how do you look into and see the next five years? 10 years, how do you see the future given, like I say, you're a young man, you've got a family, big concerns for you or or, or do you have a slightly different view of the world? There's a lot going on in the world at the moment. I, I, guess, I guess that's always the, um, 
I guess that's always the case. You know, you look at any point in history that there's always risks. But um, when there's a when there's a hot war going on, uh, as we have in Ukraine at the moment, I think it always feels worse. And I, I think uh, the other thing that I would, you know, the other observation I would make is right at the moment, there just seems to be a a, a dearth of leadership, political leadership globally. I, I think. Um, you know, the, the, a number of the, the choices that have been made in Europe, particularly around energy policy and around these self-defeating sanctions, have been dreadful. We've got, um, obviously, the, the war in Ukraine, which the, the, there just doesn't seem to be any end in sight there. And if you look at the history of uh, hot wars, uh, you know, none of them end within a, a year. You know, they, they always drag on far longer than you'd think reasonable. We've got... Um, obviously a fairly powerful trend towards deglobalization at the moment. Uh, Globalization was really what enabled inflation to remain so long for as as long as it did, because you had this uh, very powerful deflationary force. Everybody was setting up factories in China, taking advantage of uh, labor market arbitrage, a much, much cheaper labor force in China compared to wherever home was. And this meant, uh, you know, cars and TVs and fridges just kept getting cheaper and it provided a powerful deflationary force, made central bankers think that they were masters of the universe when you know, perhaps they weren't. But but that force is now reversing. Obviously, COVID revealed uh, a number of casualties around global supply chains, logistics, uh, just-in-time inventory management. All of that's changing to, you know, we got going from just-in-time to just-in-case inventory management. Fortunately, supply chains seem to be repairing themselves. I think that the worst is over there. But uh, this process of reshoring as opposed to offshoring production, holding more inventory, these are all tending to be inflationary as well. They're going to increase uh, the costs that the companies bear, and you can expect that those costs will be passed on. And as those costs get passed on, you can expect that workers, particularly in the very tight labour market that we're seeing at the moment, will be putting their hands up and demanding more money. And given the number of job openings greatly exceeds the number of people available to fill them, you can imagine a lot of companies will be forced to pay pay their workers more, which, which I think is a great thing. Uh, but, but again, it, it puts us in this potential wage price spiral. So to everybody who's heralding the, uh, the, the peak in inflation just because the oil price has gone down, look, I'm, I'm not so convinced. I, I think inflation could be sticky for longer. And, and really, what the Federal Reserve is telling us at the moment is that they need to gen, they, they need to manufacture a pretty sizable recession in order to stamp out sufficient demand to bring inflation back under control. Really, what uh, Jerome Powell and Co are telling us is that they need unemployment higher. The unemployment rate is too low. And, yeah, it's uh, something. It is something else, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, and and this is what's problem. really kind of screwing with people's heads. This cycle. It's it's a very different cycle. You, you normally associate recession with high and rising unemployment. What we've got today is a recession with effectively full employment. That said, you know the average American consumer is not in as great a shape as you might expect, given how low the unemployment rate is, because. Consumer credit is at all-time highs. Credit card balances are at all-time highs. The consumer savings rate is at a 14-year low. So, you know, the, the, and consumer sentiment is at an all-time low. It is. You know, it is an interesting time, isn't it? And when we consider, you know, when I look at 
oil. If I was swing trading, I'd be really paying attention to oil stocks. That's just me, because I think oil is going to go through the roof. That's just my own view of the world uh, based on my own research, but in my own thought processes about where I see things going. But how are you, you know, when we talked earlier, you know, we said, you know, how we see people sitting on the sidelines and, uh, you know, what are you giving people for an investment strategy? Are you suggesting, you know, swing trading aside as a, a way of generating revenue and income? Uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, the equity market overall versus sitting in cash? How do you see, you know, gold is kind of down, but it's up. It's kind of held its own, actually been pretty flat, gold and silver uh, overall. Um, what's your thoughts on all of these things that are going on right now? How are you guiding some of your clients, your students? I think, look, I think cash is the is the haven trade at the moment. Um I, I'm not a big fan of bonds here still. I mean, yields have picked up, but I think if inflation is going to be sticky, and I think it will be, and if, if uh, the Fed is going to keep jacking interest rates, and every indication is that that is their intention, uh, bonds are unlikely to deliver a, a positive return over the next six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. all, all that really means is bonds aren't a buy yet. You, there's probably a better opportunity coming up. Um, I'd say the same with stocks. I mean, we, we've had a fairly decent fall. We, we've had a pretty decent rally more recently as well. Um, but looking at long-term valuations, stocks still don't look cheap. I, I think there's still room for the stock market to come back further. Um, gold, look, I, I think a small allocation to gold makes some sense. People think of gold as a inflation hedge. And to be honest with you, gold's track record as an inflation hedge is patchy. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. To me, gold is more of a chaos hedge. And look, there, there is a fair amount of chaos going on in the world at the moment. And, and you know, there are certain flashpoints that could flare up. So I think a, a small allocation to gold makes some sense as well. But, but really, as a, as a trader, cash is my default position. And what I'm looking to do is, is deploy, put my cash at risk when I see those high probability moments in time come along. So when you hear, or I mean, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, the chances of the U.S. losing reserve currency status, especially given back to what we talked briefly on, given what Russia and China are doing, for example, many are just going, no, the U.S. will lose reserve currency status at some point. They're not saying tomorrow or even in the next couple of years, but they are saying that that's going to happen. Does that, do you have a view of that or does that affect any of the decisions that you're making today? I think no, it it doesn't affect anything that I'm doing today, and you know, I I, I hold all of my investment funds in US dollars. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that, and it's, yeah. it's worked out well. Look, I, I think the trend, the early trend, is in the direction of the US dollar one day losing its reserve status. But I think that that's that's a multi-decade play. It's not going to happen in the next ten years. It, it it may happen within the next thirty. Yeah, um, but it, it's certainly not impacting or influencing any, anything that I do today. Beautiful. Well, Simon, as we start to wind down, this has been a big topic. It's been a little bit, I guess, it's it's one of those heavy topics, really, because we're talking about a lot of, uh, you know, we're talking about stocks, we're talking about equity market, we're talking about economy. I mean, these are all pretty heavy things. So we're going to wind down and have a little bit of fun. I do some just some really quick rapid fire questions. I want to do here a little bit more about where people can get a hold of your book. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that at the very end of this. But uh, speaking of books, yeah, other than your own, what was a book that had the biggest impact on you and or that you like to gift to people today? 
there are two books sort of within the the trading realm that I, I love and the two books that I've read the most often and that I recommend the most. One is called Trading in the Zone by Mark Douglas. And he deals with trading psychology and mindset. And you read that book. I recommend people read it and listen to it on an audio book. Somehow it just hits you differently as an audio book. Yeah. That's how you get your head right for trading. Uh, uh, to me, that is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, another trading book that I love is Reminiscences of a, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre. Uh, re- recounts the the story of Jesse Livermore. And, and again, it's just full of so many anecdotes of trading psychology. It was written in the 1920s, and it just shows you that uh, human nature was the same 100 years ago as it is today. So Beautiful. two books that I, I really love. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Where does the trader, where does the analytical, technical analyst, what do you use for a, is there a couple of inspirational quotes or one that you have as a go-to? Um, I mean, the, the I guess the quote that I, I love most and, and live by is, you know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it is true, isn't it? Yeah. And that is such a true statement. And, you know, with, with the benefit of, you know, a, a bit of bit of life experience now, uh, any really tough time that you're going through, you, you, you'll almost always be able to laugh about it five years later. Yeah. And even if you can't laugh about it, you'll have a great story. <laughs> Absolutely. So just, just, Keep pushing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Oh, of course. Okay. That's almost a given. Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite band that you listen to? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to say Guns N' Roses. Uh, oh, I, wow. There yeah, Appet- Appetite for Destruction was the, the soundtrack of my youth. And yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're coming to Singapore next month and I've got tickets and I can't Oh, wait. beautiful. Oh, a little bit of an old rocker. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. How about favorite movie? Anything that shows up? Yeah, I'd say Pulp Fiction. I think that movie was was genius. You know something? That movie has come up by a number of guests over the years uh, that, uh, you know, they like that. That's a good movie. It was a great, great movie, no doubt about it. A classic. And um, if heaven exists, what do you hear? want to hear God say when you get to the door? Well done on getting here. I hope you have fun. Beautiful. Do you have a favorite swear word? Uh, probably can't say that on the show. Okay. <laughs> there's been a lot there's been a lot shared on the show trust me <laughs> okay and the final question what are you grateful for today simon uh, i am grateful that um our young son slept for a six-hour stretch <laughs> wonderful how old is your son uh, he's nearly two but he's, yeah. uh, he's having some sleeping issues so uh, we're, we're working through that at the moment <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, and I'm always grateful for the guests that I have on my show. And uh, certainly I'm uh, grateful to have had the opportunity to uh, speak with you today, Simon. Now, when it comes to getting a hold of you, learning more uh, about what you do, uh, where can people go? So my website is www.taooftradinc.com, taooftrading.com. And uh, what I like to do is, is offer your audience uh, a special offer if, if they would like to, to work with me and, and learn a bit more about trading. If they go to taooftradinc.com forward slash TEDM, so that's Tower of Trading forward slash TEDM, they, they'll be able to download the first chapter of my book for free, see if they like it, uh, and access some of my educational materials at a, at a pretty big discount. 
Fantastic. We'll get that definitely in the show notes. Simon, thanks for your time, your insights, your view of the world. Uh, very much appreciated and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Been a real pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.